what's up, fam? How are you guys? Um, so, uh, it's time for us to go through a book together. Uh, this, is, this is a sweet time uh, for our ministry, and it's a special thing, because for so long, you know, we've talked about dating, we've talked about um, your calling, we talked about Christmas, we talked about some tough stuff, see what I did there? Um, we've talked about all these kinds of different things, but we haven't actually gone through a book together a book study together, and that's what we're going to do um, with the kind of the final series of our year, if you can believe it, because you guys have finals in about a month, so hopefully that wasn't like the worst news ever, but don't check, don't check, Hold it, don't cry, don't cry, um, but it's almost over, unbelievably so, but we're going to finish strong by going through a book together, uh, and I've told this story like 50 times, so I apologize to those of you who have already heard it, um, but this is kind of how we like to do book studies. When I started teaching the college Sunday school class, we went through the book of Exodus, chapters 1 through 15. And when I started, Zane Holcomb was a freshman in college. And when Zane Holcomb was a sophomore in college, we were on Exodus chapter 15. So that's kind of like what we like to do. We like to take it piece by piece and just grind it out. Um, I don't think that's the only way to do it by any means. I mean, obviously, because we haven't done it this far, thus far, whatever the right word is there. But, but I think it is the best way to pay the closest attention to God's Word. And because, you know, after all, I can preach and, and the band can play until we're both about to pass out. And, and nothing's going to change in your life. It's God's Word that changes us. And, and that's, that's called sanctification. It's a fancy word, but it's just the process of having your heart changed. It's the process of having your heart look more like Jesus after He saves you. And next week, we'll dive into Jonah chapter 1. But tonight, we're going to kind of do a flyover and touch on a couple of quick themes in the book and set the stage for the actual digging that we'll do next week, if that makes sense. Um, so here's kind of the story. So just kind of wind the clock back to Sunday school and the felt board and the popsicle sticks and the things that I don't understand. Um, so here's the story. Jonah is a Galilean. He's, he's from Galilee. He's from a town very close to Nazareth. And he's a prophet to Israel during the time that the ten tribes of Israel... Um, let me back up. He's a prophet to Israel and it's ten tribes. And it's in this time where the kingdom of Israel is split between two different kingdoms. The kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. So Jonah is a prophet to Israel, the kingdom of the north. But Jonah is not really known for his ministry in Israel. He's really known for his reluctant ministry in a place called Nineveh. Nineveh was, at the time, probably the largest city in the world. It was also the capital of a place called Assyria. In Jonah's day, Assyria was weak and Israel was strong. Israel's king, Jeroboam II, was expanding the northern borders of Israel, and Israel was enjoying great prosperity. But as Proverbs 16, 18 tells us, pride comes before destruction. During Jeroboam's reign, Israel and Jonah enjoyed physical and military success, but spiritually, they were destitute and broken. The poor were taken advantage of, political corruption and temples and false gods ran rampant across the country, and judgment was coming for Israel. And it would come 40 or so years later through, guess who? Assyria. 
Many scholars believe that part of the reason Assyria didn't take Israel earlier is because of the brief time of repentance brought to its capital by Jonah. But was Jonah really the one who did it? Well, he certainly didn't want to. Uh, Open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1, and we're going to go through verses 1 through 3. So Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up and fled to Tarshish instead from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa and found a ship which was going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So the text kind of does this echoing thing where God tells Jonah to go up to Nineveh. And Jonah goes down to Tarshish to flee from the presence of the Lord. And as he fled the presence of the Lord, he went down to Tarshish. So if you look at it, and you can just Google this later, but like... If you see it on a map, if you're looking at the map, Nineveh, so Jonah's kind of here. Nineveh is up and to the right. Jonah literally goes, so this is where he's called. Jonah literally goes down and to the left to Joppa, and then Tarshish is 2,500 miles across the ocean over here. So not only is Jonah fleeing from the presence of the Lord, Jonah is fleeing in the polar opposite direction. And we always kind of learned this growing up, right? Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because Jonah was afraid, right? Aw, Jonah was afraid. And the moral of Jonah is don't be afraid, trust God. And that's not a bad guess that Jonah would be afraid because the Ninevites were a particularly brutal group of people. But that's not why Jonah runs, He runs for a reason that is way more interesting and a little bit more complicated. Look at Jonah chapter 4. So literally just turn the page to Jonah chapter 4. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 2. So this is the end of the story. Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Lord, why have these people repented? Is this not what I said while I was still in my own country? There, that, that therefore, in order to protest this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and a compassionate God. I knew that you were slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and steadfast love, one who relents from destruction. So Jonah is looking at God and Jonah is saying, I knew this was going to happen. He sees the people of Nineveh repenting, turning from their sin. The the disaster never comes. And Jonah says, I knew this was going to happen. I knew you were going to forgive these people. That's why Jonah ran. Look at me. Jonah did not run because the Ninevites were scary and Jonah was nervous. Jonah ran because God is merciful and Jonah's a racist. This is why Jonah actually fled. You see, one of the problems with Israel in this time period and why they got the whooping that came to him later is that they believed that since they were God's covenant people, it led to them, it led to them looking down their nose at other races. It made them feel superior. 
Zeb, can you turn me down just a little bit? I feel like I'm about to crack the windows. Thank you. Um, see, Israel had this knowledge of God, right? They were God's covenant people. But since they didn't actually know God, it only led to pride. Because this is what happens in our lives. You, you know about God, but you don't actually know who God is. And when that happens, it leads to you looking down your nose at the how dare they's and the I can't believe they did this. And that's what happened with Israel. Jonah was no different. But that's why God calls Jonah. Because God wants Jonah to meet him. Jonah knew God, right? Jonah knew who about God. It says in, verse, in, in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, it says, I knew you were merciful. I knew you're, you see it in verse 2? I knew your steadfast love. I knew, or it says, I knew your loving kindness. You see that? God uses those words to describe himself to Moses back in Exodus. This is covenant language that Jonah is using. Jonah knew exactly, look at me, Jonah knew exactly who God was. And look at how well he kind of recites this. Like you'll see this over and over again in the Bible that he's slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, slow to calamity. You see this over and over in the Bible. Jonah is just repeating the church words that he knows. And look at how well he says it, right? How eloquently, how church kid perfect he says these things about God. Can't you see him like reciting this at Awana? Like you're slow to anger, you're abounding in step, but like having no clue what he's talking about. So you know, Jonah was the same. Jonah listened to Hillsong Young and Free when he went to the gym instead of inappropriate rap music. He was buying the latest like Matt Chandler book. He was lifting his hands during the music and going to all the conferences. He knew who God was, he knew the answers, he knew what to say, so he he says, I know you're like this, I knew you were going to do this. He knows about God, and then God called Jonah out of his comfort zone, and we realize that Jonah, in fact, had no idea who God was. But in mercy, God calls him anyway. You see, one of the things that you'll get from Jonah is mercy doesn't always look like what we think it looks like, okay? God's mercy is not always Instagrammable mercy. God could have, here's mercy, God could have left Jonah there in his hometown. He could have left him comfortable, drowning in pride, and on his way to hell because Jonah did not know the Lord. He could have just let Jonah be. You see, God's wrath on this side of eternity looks way different than it's going to look on the other side. Nine times out of ten, God's wrath comes in just letting us be. Letting us kind of dig our own graves. Letting us continue in our habits and addictions and selfishness and not moving his hand. But in mercy, he will reach out to us. In mercy, like Jonah, God will begin to draw us out. He'll pull us into something that might be uncomfortable. 
He'll pull us into something that will begin to stretch us. Not to punish us, but so that we can know Him. And is this not what God has done throughout all of Scripture? He pulled Abram away from his hometown to begin a nation. He pulled that same nation out of slavery in Exodus into the wilderness. He pulls the disciples out of their families into the unknown to minister to His people. This is God's M.O. throughout all of Scripture. If you go to a, if you, like, you go to a baseball game and I'm like, how was it? And you're like, well, I didn't really like that there was so much baseball in it. Well, what, like, what did you expect? And in the same way, it's like, what's your Christian life like right now? And I'm really being stretched and I'm just really angry at God for where He's got me in this unknown place and I'm so uncomfortable right now. And the first thing I would say to that is, listen, that's actually a good thing. That means he's doing an incredible surgery in your life. But the second thing is, well, what did you really expect? This is what God has done throughout all of Scripture. He calls us out in love. He calls us out of comfort sometimes to move us closer to him. When we say, and you hear this all the time at the conferences and on YouTube and everywhere, nothing is stronger than God's love. And everybody cheers and, and everybody goes crazy. We always mean... God's love is stronger than your addictions. It's stronger than your abuse. It's stronger than your trials and pains. And all that's true. Let me ask you a question. Look at me. What about your comfort? Have you ever thought about your comfort being something that God needs to strong arm you out of? Have you ever thought about your comfort being an idol? You see, without God's grace... Without God's hand on your life, comfort can become an idol. You could take our addictions, you could take our pains, but if you touch my comfort, Lord, then we got problems. He will break into your comfort zone in love to lead your heart out of comfort and towards Him. World War I is when poisonous gas was introduced into the battlefield. And here's the, the really awful thing that people would do. Enemies would make the gas smell sweet, like flowers or honey, so that the enemies walking would want to breathe in more deeply, taking in as much as they could of what killed them taking in as much as they could of what killed them. Comfort can be like that in the Christian life. Sweetly dulling our minds, paralyzing us, turning us off to the things of God, where when you begin to feel, you know, and you know, this happens with college kids all the time. You're on fire, you're pumped, you're ready to go, and then the summer's over. The conference ends. You leave prayer group and you go back into your television, which is on the sofa, which is in the air conditioning, which is by the bearskin rug, whatever, I don't know, and you're super comfortable, and you just kind of slow, you haven't done anything wrong. There's nothing wrong with the couch. And you just slowly fade. And then the pull comes, and then Sunday morning just like hits you like a ton of bricks, and you're like, oh my gosh, i got to get up and go do this again. And it's just so much easier to kind of fade out. And it's not just about church. I'm not trying to pad my numbers. It's about 
You want to talk to your friends about the things of God and you're at camp and things are awesome and here we go and it's sing, sing reckless love again. Just sing it again, man. Just hit me again, Ricky, and you just keep going and going. And then you leave and now talking about God with your friends, you guys just, you just, you can't get back into it. It's just not the same. It's easier to talk about other things and you just slowly slip away into this comfort. It happens to me. It happens to us all the time turning us off to the things of God and our comfort. See, this is what happens. And this is why so many of you are in pain and you don't really understand. Here's what's going on for some of you. It works comfort, it, this, this dulling. It works its way into our bloodstream so thoroughly. It soaks into your skin so thoroughly that when God has to get it out, He's got to cut deeper with you. I had uh, my teeth got infected um, after my wisdom tooth surgery when I was in high school because they should have been taken out when I was in about 8th grade. And they didn't get taken out until I was a junior in, college, a junior in high school. And since they grew so much, the dentist had to cut, the oral surgeon had to cut deep to get them out. And so I kept getting dry sockets because he had to cut in so deep. This is what happens to us when we, when we slide down this river of comfort. We start drowning in it. And he's got to reach deeper and deeper to get us out. So when he reaches deep in love to free us, we, it hurts. And so we say, God, what are, what are you doing? Because we're so locked into our comforts that we think being comfortable is normal. So what God is doing, pulling us out, healing us, helping us, now this feels, the grace of God feels abnormal in your life. His work feels unwelcome. His work, move in my heart, God. Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. You sing that. Do you know what that means, though? It means he's about to tear it up. He's about to, and he's not a football coach who's like going to pop you, but he's going to do surgery. He's going to work in your life and, and pull and prod and make things better and stronger and pull you deeper. But it feels unwelcome to us because Comfort has infected our bloodstream. And there's nothing wrong with being comfortable, but there is something wrong when we begin to worship that. You see how perverted it can make our minds when comfort becomes an idol? This is what happened with Jonah. He says no to God. He literally runs in the other direction. But praise God, nothing is stronger than His love. Not even your comfort you think about His grace, you know, breaking, spirit breakout, and, and Bethel just goes crazy. You think about His grace breaking in and breaking addictions. But have you ever thought about His grace breaking into your comfort level? Um, you hear all this, all, and some of you who work in child care may know much better than me, but like you hear about moms when they have newborns and they're asleep and they're just like, watching them like a hawk in the crib all night when they've got like blankets to make sure that the newborn doesn't suffocate on anything. Listen, God doesn't call you out of comfort because He's trying to rough you up or make you dislike Him. Follow me. God does this because He loves you too much to let you suffocate on comfort. So when He calls you out, imagine a parent staring over their newborn, carefully pulling the, the blanket back, making sure that they don't get so interlocked in all this that they begin to suffocate. Jonah was a prophet. He's in, the, he's in the Bible. 
He's a prophet. He knew who God was. But in the time of testing, his head knowledge does not help him at all. Jonah is a church kid. Jonah's one of us. He's one of, he's one of our people, man. He might even have been homeschooled. But you know, shout out to Delano. You know, so he, so, and this, follow this. You know about God, right? Jonah knew about God, but when it came time to show it, he was nowhere to be found. You know about God, but then you and your girlfriend or you and your boyfriend get back to your place after a concert late at night. Or you know about God, but then you get into a wreck. Or you know about God, and then the breakup happens. Or you know about God, and then you lose your job. Or you're in a job that you don't like, or that you can't get your footing. And now it's, what, what are you, why are you doing this to me? And just like Jonah, you're nowhere to be found. Your head knowledge of God cannot hold up. Think about it. He quotes everything perfectly. His head knowledge has not gone to his heart. Because just like Jonah, maybe you know about God, but you've never actually met him. Jonah sang in the temple. Jonah was circumcised into Israel. Jonah answered all the questions growing up as a kid. And when it came time for Jonah to give himself up, to put himself on the altar, he was gone. And that's where I'm supposed to end the sermon, right? What are you going to do when the storms come? The answer is probably when the storms come, you and I will probably act a lot like Jonah. We're going to eject. But one of the points of the book of Jonah is, follow me, because this is not at all what you hear in church so often. One of the points in the book of Jonah is, Look at how God treats those who bail on him. You know the rest of the story. Does God leave Jonah alone after he bails? Does God turn his back on Jonah after he ejects? No. Get this through your head as we begin this series. Jonah is hopeless. But God is there. And you are hopeless. Locked in your pride, locked in your addictions, locked in your... you got stuff wrong with you that you don't even know is wrong with you. Same with me. And you, you see it more in me than anybody, probably, because I'm up here all the time. But you got stuff wrong with you that you don't even know about. David prays in the Psalms, forgive me of my unseen faults. Because if David's got stuff wrong with him, you are hopeless. But God is there. Scholars believe that this book was probably written by Jonah himself. There's too much detail about Jonah that that third person wouldn't understand. Jonah wrote this. Jonah is showing us in his story, look how far off I went. Look how fast and how hard I ran. Look how blatantly I disobeyed. And still he loved me. Still he pursued me. He loved me, and this is Jonah, he loved me enough to break into my life. Have you thought about that before? He does not wait for you to, tell, to give him permission. He loves you too much. He lo- Jonah certainly was not asking for permission. He loved me enough to break into my life 
Have you thought about God like that? And to turn my heart to Him. Listen, God loves you where you are, right now, right now. In your pride that you can't even see, in your porn addiction, in your self-centeredness, in your disobedient insecurity. He loves you where you are. And He loves you too much to leave you there. That's the story of Jonah. But Jonah isn't just about Jonah. Jonah is a shadow of one who is to come. One who Matthew 11 says is greater than Jonah. The one who threw himself into a much bigger storm. The storm of God's wrath. To save those around him who didn't know God. And we'll touch on this in a few weeks, but think about that. Christ says one greater than Jonah has come. What does that mean? Jonah tells the sailors, the only way that you're going to be safe is if you throw me into this storm. This storm that's going to crush you. Throw me in. Let me get destroyed. And the storm will stop for you. Christ looks at us, the pagan sailors who don't know the Lord who could give a rip, and He says to us, the only way for the storm of God's wrath to not break over your head is if I throw myself in. And so Christ throws himself into the storm. That's what he means when he says one greater than Jonah. Christ does what Jonah could never do. And this is why we talk about Jonah. This is why he's in the Bible. Because he's a pointer to someone else who's going to come and soak up the storm so that we can go free who will willingly go to the Ninevites to reach them for the gospel. And so as we begin this series, I want you to begin to think about the things in your life that you're uncomfortable in right now. Family issues, right? Everybody loves mom and dad, right? Family issues, dating, singleness, some that, that weird in-between where we're on two different pages, whatever that means, you know, trying to figure it out. You're in a job that you're not wild about right now or you can't find a job right now. You feel pulled to something deeper with God but you don't know what that is or you're too scared to jump yet. These things in your life that are making you uncomfortable begin to picture God looking at you as a parent looks at their child carefully taking care of you every inch so that you don't suffocate on comfort. Begin to think through this as we walk through the book of Jonah, as we look at his unrepentant heart and how the Lord works in him. Let's pray together.